0: I'm Alexandra Kreis, and you're listening to Outer Travel, Inner Journey. In my own search for self-understanding, I have met people from all walks of life. I bring to you a taste of these encounters. And welcome back to Outer Travel and Inner Journey, my podcast um, today with my guest, Priya Basil. Hello, Priya. How are you doing? (laughs) Hi, Alex. Um,
1: As good as can be, I suppose, in these rather strange circumstances in which
0: we are now speaking. Absolutely. I mean, we had meant to have this in my kitchen because you also where I live here in the same town city. And I would have kind of loved to host you with a cup of tea, to be honest. (laughs) Looking because Priya is here today. Um, She is a yoga student, or she is a student of yoga and practitioner. And Priya is originally uh, from London and she was born into a family of Indians and grew up in Kenya now lives in Berlin like me and she published uh, two novels and a novella as she says here and you can read more about her in the piece below the podcast so you get her um, biography a little bit more sharply when you're reading through it but the very reason we're sitting here together is and I'm not hosting her with a cup of tea is that she brought out a very beautiful and touching book. It's called Be My Guest. I got it here for those interested. This is the English version, and it, there's also a German version of it. Um, yeah, and it's been quite celebrated already, Priya. Is that true? It's the book-like. It's, you been,
1: it's been very gratifying to see how uh, well the book has been received and mm. how it offers a possibility for people to connect to it in really different ways because um, I think the dimension of food and sharing is something that somehow we can all uh, connect to. Yeah. And then it has these other levels too of kind of more political and philosophical reflections of what it means to live together. And um, I, so it's, it means that it's opened up very different kinds of conversations in very different contexts. And that's quite amazing that with one book, you kind of yeah have so many different ways of uh, approaching and discussing
0: absolutely i mean um, i I was super touched because I know you as a practitioner of yoga and um, so I know you from this inner seeking, and i I felt like reading this book I got to know you in a different dimension but what kind of came through for me, of course, with the eyes that I see the world that you very much see the world in the same way, more from an ethical perspective. Do you think it's yogic ethically inspired? You know, is this? are the, some of the thought patterns you're discussing in this book, are they inspired by what you do on the mat or is this more something that has always been within your own family tradition and, you know, lifestyle, if one can say that. Lifestyle is a good word. Yeah, that's
1: an interesting question. I have to confess that um, I have never very consciously put the two together. That's, say, my yoga practice and what I wrote in this book. But I'm sure that you're right, that there is some sense in which these things are connected through a certain sensibility that you have, a way that you want mm. to be in the world. Yeah, and um, And so I think that connection could be made. Um, I mean, certainly this book came out of a obsession with food and cooking and being together, eating with people, because I come from a family of, you know, people who are quite fanatical about food. Um, I talk about my grandmother, Mumji, a fantastic cook who never shares recipes and force feeds you. And then my mother and my uncle sort of follow this cooking tradition, but in their very own ways, because, um, Yeah, I think there's something interesting about food and the power it has and how that power can also be misused a bit in the way it was with my grandmother to really kind of try and force you into certain um, reactions and uh, certain – she wanted something back from you. And so um, I guess for me, it's also been about – this question of how much we, we take from our families and our past and how if we ever really manage to escape the sort of traditions and ideas that, um, that, that form our early lives. Hmm. And so uh, that, that food dimension is something that I feel like as a host myself and as a very, yeah, happy eater, um, I'm still working out a kind of way to be reasonable yeah. And I think that's, that's weird because, of course, the whole idea of hospitality is that it's about abundance mm. and bounty and not setting limits. Um, and at the same time, of course, in a certain sense, one needs boundaries and yeah. limits. And so configuring that balance, I guess, is something that is at the core of a yoga practice and yeah. a general approach to living in a more generous, ethical way.
0: Yeah, I think so. Because when you talk about hospitality and you talk about it a lot in the book as well, which also kind of bordered on the subjects that I um, also loved to discuss in my former life before I became yoga teacher, Ayurveda coach. You know, it was the idea of how do we allow people into our lives through what I did in social work. But before we go there, I just wanted to pick up on on the hospitality quote that you just did, in I think when we talk about hospitality from my point of view, hospitality is something that you can gift. It's almost like Christmas in some form. you know it's something special. We can give something and we can be in the hospitality of people or of food but it's not a day-to-day kind of occurrence and you call it the balance of what we're trying to find in the yoga practice so yeah when you when you are a lover of food as you are you know you probably have to very much distinguish between when are you feeling very hospital do you say that in english hospital to yourself like hospitable hospitable thank you (laughs) to yourself or when is it time to maybe have and develop a different relationship to your own food consuming? Is there something that has come forth in writing and you know this book and kind of looking deeper into the subject?
1: I think we live in a time where food is really a sort of identifier for many people the choices of what and how to eat um, are part of a statement of who you are and uh, how you want to be seen in the world. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, in the book, I talk about the, the hashtag food porn and you know, how it's one of the most popular trending things on Instagram. And then you have hashtag eat clean. And um, mm-hmm. there, there are all these different ways in which I suppose we, food can be a way to try and distinguish yourself. And I mean, I'm a vegetarian um, kind of edging towards more, being more vegan. And, um, and for me, that is, part, that is a kind of ethical choice um, yeah. because of the way that um, meat is uh, and animals are, are treated and, and, and meat is manufactured. And mm. so um, I think that there's definitely for me this dimension to eating, but it can also become quite oppressive and um, restrictive. And so um, there's such a joy in food and there's such a possibility for connection with others and such a possibility for discovery Mm. of flavors and places and traditions. Mm. And so I wanted to write something that really celebrated that Mm. um, and the possibilities it gives us to talk about bigger issues of how we live together and share um, while acknowledging that there is definitely a sense of um, responsibility in what you choose to do to eat and yeah. with whom and how
0: yeah and and that I love about the book you know I love the celebrative part in a way that I have come from a yogic discipline where I often felt and heard conversations around food that they're very constricted in a way like you know I'm you have to be vegan you have to be vegetarian as a yogi and then it's all people get so obsessed about like what's right and wrong so we're losing the connection to food and what it can do between you and me you know in this kind of sense of becoming a guest at somebody's house and you know finding common ground of you know likes and dislikes instead of becoming so um, almost like um as if we're trying to have the right theory around everything even around food and i think that's not yogic at all i mean yogic to me it means to respect food for what it is so it needs to be celebrated in some form and that we that we can engage with it and i loved about it that you truly engage and are so you know so open um, hearted about, your sharing about how you relate to food, you know I, I, I think there's not many people who would say what you say in the book uh, about themselves, you know I like to eat that and I need to have that and I, that were the parts where my heart really kind of opened up <laughs> and uh, where I felt like, wow, there's a lot of guts behind what you're writing you know, there, it takes uh, to me, it would take um, tremendous Mm, openness and clarity with myself to be able to write that and bring that forward to a broader audience. Did you feel the same about it, like a self-revelation? Thank you very much
1: for for acknowledging that. I I mean, I must say, this book turned out to be a more personal book than I had thought it would be when I was writing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it seemed to me that one way in which I could approach the difficult aspects of this book, which um, are really about how we want to and can live with each other, was also to, to um, be frank about my own doubts and struggles and greed. Mm. Um, because, you know, we, however much we might aspire mm. to being more ethical, responsible people, we're full of contradictions and full of weaknesses and flaws. Yeah. And I think for me, the... I really have a lot of respect and admiration for people who are so consistent and who can be so kind of self-denying in many ways mm-hmm. and therefore live very sort of, um, yeah, upright lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is not always possible for all of us. And I think sometimes people um, maybe don't want to do something because they, can't, they think they can't do it completely. Whereas I think, you know, if you just stop eating meat, you only eat it a couple of times a week, that, that's much better than, you know, thinking, oh, I have to be vegetarian. Yeah. It's just take the steps that are possible for you hmm. at this particular moment. Hmm. And um, and also, I think that's a kind of generosity too, to recognize um, that we don't always get it right completely. and um, hmm. And to just sort of, encourage oneself and others in trying to find a way to make better choices
0: yeah and in fact what um, I'm researching that kind of thing a lot these days you know where I have come from I think I'm a perfectionist to be honest you know and I I know a lot of people who may know that about themselves or may you know agree with like there is an attitude to being becoming perfect um, and that perfect you know that in that sense if we go down that road of trying to do a hundred percent instead of eighty percent of something we're not gaining much more so if you're trying to be a hundred percent vegan vegetarian or whatever it in fact won't contribute to a more balanced life or world you know because the fact is that the moment you whatever you do if you reach a Uh, B plus, you know, or like an 82% of what you want to reach, you're actually at the best measure of it. And anything you do beyond it is proven that it will take you much longer than to reach the 80%. And it won't get better outcomes for people around you and for yourself. In fact, you're losing energy in doing more than 80%. So yeah, I'm all about what you said, you know, it's like I admire people who get to the hundred percent. Maybe with an easy stride. <laughs> um, it's sometimes it's enough if we acknowledge that we we are human beings and we do fail and we we can't be perfect. That's you know what I picked up from what you just said.
1: Yeah, I think for me, what was also very interesting with writing was to because I was very influenced by the thinking of the French philosopher Jacques Derrida uh, when I was writing and his ideas of unconditional hospitality, mm. which he acknowledges is an un- impossible idea. Mm. Um, but he says that the only possibility of the thing is the experience of the impossibility. And that mm. sounds like a riddle, a total conundrum. But um, for me, what that, what that sort of translates into is that there doesn't need to be necessarily a fixed goal towards which one is always moving, but that, but that things are always in flux and shifting. And that simply this attempt to keep trying to do better, uh, whatever it is one's, one is committed to and, and trying to reach, the, 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 this is the most kind of valuable thing. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this applies, of course, in one's personal, like uh, search or journey, but then also in our society at large, mm-hmm. um, that we, and, and I, I think I was writing particularly with a view to um, migration and borders and this idea of who is welcome in our society, who is treated as a stranger. Um, and and this for me, the idea of unconditional hospitality is is kind of a call to always be as open as possible to what might come in yourself and in and from others. And it's a it's a really, I mean, it's definitely the most challenging and um, in a way the most destabilizing idea I've encountered in my life. That uh, this this um, this idea that you 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 approach everything openly without deciding in advance what the outcome should be that's the basic um, of tantra, tantra such yoga a powerful one yeah and i think if we could be in that mindset a bit more um it could open up incredible things in our relations to each other and in the world
0: absolutely but that's the basic of uh, that's the theory behind tantra yoga you know it's the i mean if we go down the road of um shivaism tantrism not about the what people think tantra is but when we come back to the philosophy and the lifestyle it's about um, i think one of the i don't even know what yogi it was but most of us know this quote you know and wherever you go there you are i mean we're carrying ourselves uh, around with our issues and what you spoke about this unconditional hospitality you call it i mean the yogis they just called it like to be in the movement with life and how life moves and that's in expansion and contraction you know there will be times in our invid individual lives as we are experiencing them right now where we are contracting and where some of us are expanding with what's going on and then it happens on a social level on a society level on a planetary level so This idea to find stability, which we all are trying to do in form of different controls, is just such an illusion. You know, it's an illusion that that exists because the world is in a constant flux, as you said, you know, and so i really the more i listen to you and uh, after reading the book is like i would say food is your yoga you know <laughs> i mean you're coming to the essentially to the same answers in with the help of philosophers and whoever you researched and been touched by in a way of that that we all cannot afford to be standing still and rigid with life and how we are towards ourselves or others or ideas of eating or hospitality you yeah. so that's a little bit what I heard and you also stumbled across you know we, you talked about greed earlier and you mentioned Peter Singer's The Life You Can Save do you want to say something about that was is that the connection you can make where
1: yeah that was a very influential um, book for me uh, at I think maybe was it eight, ten 10 years ago? Um, and I think it really alerted me to the ways in which our lives are connected and to those who are, you know, not immediately visible to us around us but on the other side of the world and the responsibility that we have um, for each other. Mm. Um, even if we don't, we're not like uh, in, immediately, we don't appear to be in the same sort of circle or community and uh, And what Peter Singer points to is how um, you know we, we're so well off and affluent in our Western societies, even the the, mo- the poorest among us. And I know that there is extreme poverty in many Western countries now. I mean, it's really got quite very, very dire in recent years, and um, in Germany as well, in the u k. and the u s there are people living in terrible conditions. Um, and nevertheless, Peter points to us that. Um, very often even those who are in in the most hardship um, in in the West are much better off than um, people in developing countries and Mm -hmm. that the money that we would spend to get a coffee or a bottle of mineral water could make such a difference to their lives. Mm
0: -hmm. And so
1: he um, set up something called the pledge where you commit to give 1% of your earnings to um, charities uh, and he's also... uh, Part of a movement called effective altruism whereby the, the, the charities are, are, are checked and sort of surveyed um, to see which ones are most effective in their giving and um, there, there are a few different organizations that evaluate and on his website Peter has a list of charities that fulfill this and some people find it very cynical because you know what are the criteria by which you decide something is effective yeah. But I think it's an interesting um, approach, and so um, I think at that moment when I when I read Peter Singh, I'd sort of had the sense that you know there's hardship in my own family, and I, I'm responsible for helping some, some family members, and and therefore you know there's not such a big um, onus on me to 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 look further and to do more. Mm. And he really changed my view on that, made me realize that with some with very few actions, I can maybe make a difference somewhere Mm -hmm. and so i committed to the pledge and i upheld that for some years and over the years i've tried i've increased the amount that i give from my earnings and um he the people who are who are what we call extreme altruists Mm -hmm. and they give 30 to 50 percent of their income away even more and um, it's a bit like a sort of a personal um, challenge or competition with oneself. Like you're always trying to reach a new personal best the way runners are always trying to maybe, you know, yeah. have a new sprint, best sprint time. Mm. And uh, and I think that's a very interesting idea that you, again, it's the idea of the unconditional hospitality, like always going a bit further than you thought you could go. Yeah. And um, and yeah, so I I was very influenced by his writing and his thinking and i think it caught me at a moment when um perhaps yeah i mean this is the case sometimes too that uh, that an idea needs to also find you in the right moment and in the right uh, mindset to accept it Mm. and and it, it did at that moment and so it's become very much part of the way that i um think about and arrange myself and my finances
0: it reminds me of, like, I'm, last year I got really interested in Ram Das uh, due to personal reasons, you know. It was really triggered in the moment I kind of set out to understand his story. I really, you know, felt like I started to live. And the one thing that touched me most about him was that he put his emphasis on the lifestyle in helping people, which is like at the core of my own very being, but the way he did it is exactly um, the same as you are calling it out from Peter Singer's um, organization. You know, he has spent most of his money on helping projects he has set up himself, you know, like uh, to, to give people eyesight and so on and so forth. And um, And I was super surprised because he comes from a Jewish-American background, So, and his father was quite well off, and he decided not to take the money of his father. But whatever he did in his life, he would kind of contribute to other people's lives as much as possible. And when uh, he died last year, and when he um, died, he was actually... uh, already in such a bad shape that he needed a lot of care in the last couple of years or like even 10 years of his life um, as he was affected and everything came back to him that was the beauty to me in his story you know the moment that we put altruism forward it seems like we're giving something away but we're getting so much back that's my sense when When I do give 1% of my, I give 5% of my earnings to organizations, you know, initially I chose them a little bit alongside what I wanted to, um, uh, what I felt good with. But then when I read the Peter Singer story in your book, you know, I also... Uh, went back and looked at like, okay, where is my money even more impactful? And I actually, you know, contributed, have you ever heard of Kiva.org? this organization of, they organize small loans for business owners in the third world, you know, like women and what I kind of specialized on in supporting was women that are trying to Raise their own bar in the in the smallest way, and kind of like selling grains and they need a loan of eight dollars to to really kind of buy uh, whatever they need the seeds um, to plant and so on and so forth and there's so many ways that we can help in the third world and make it useful for the people and women in my case you know which I try to support more and more um, to, to really find a life. And if they can't pay the money back, uh, that's my present to them. You know, That's kind of like me helping them. And that organization does something that um, if you give them a loan, your money doesn't come back to you and they pay it back. It goes back to another project if you, if you allow it to. So whatever money you invest, it circulates and has this kind of power of giving somebody a hope to really kind of put their best foot forward. Uh, in their own kind of development. So, yeah, that, that's what your story inspired. But um, would you like to read us something, Priya, at this point? You've chosen small passages so people yes, can hear sure. about the beauty um, of the I book. picked
1: um, a section which gives a little flavor of um, my grandmother, Mamji, who plays quite a... Um, quite a role in the book. Uh, I, I mentioned her earlier, she is really the kind of ua feeder in our family and um, yeah, has a very special way of um, feeding and uh, being with people. Mumji, amazingly, has never owned a cookbook which might account for her caginess about recipes. She's an amazing cook, friends and family say about Mumji, before grudgingly adding, but she never shares a recipe. Perhaps for this reason, Mumji has no really close friends. It's probably also why she finds it hard to ask for recipes. Instead, she eats with sharp attentiveness, turning food over with her fingers, scanning, sniffing, and sucking in search of spice traces. Sometimes she delves deeper with seemingly casual questions. Some people put javan in everything because it's good for digestion. What do you think? Afterwards, she'll remark to us how disappointing the dishes were. Jussie has no idea what flavours go together. Who puts sweet corn with fish? Or, John really fancies himself a chef, but he doesn't have a clue. Did you see the number of cloves in that chicken? Soon, if not the very next day. The family might be treated to a variation on a dish recently tasted somewhere. At Jussie's? Or John's? You can feast on Mumji's food, but rarely do you get to do so with her. The first time my husband dined at her table, an invitation that finally came more than a year after we'd met, he followed the example set by the rest of us and filled his plate from the spread laid out for his welcome. But when we started tucking in, he waited. What about Mumji? he pointed to the empty empty chair. She's not coming yet, I told him. Just start, the others said. Still, he hesitated, disabled by a decorum that dictated you don't begin eating until everyone is seated and served. A few minutes later, Mamji entered the dining room bearing a fresh batch of chapatis. apron sprayed with flour, cheeks red from heat. She went around offering the rotis but stopped short at the sight of my husband's untouched food. Eat, she ordered, and when he tried to explain, she cut him off. I'm working hard, so you getting everything hot, 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 and you letting everything go all cold. Eat! He obeyed, and ever after reluctantly accepted her peculiar protocol. Part of Mumji's purpose in serving is to survey how much people are ingesting. She keeps a mental tab on the amount of helpings taken, the bowls of dal refilled, the number of rotis eaten. She remembers how much you had last time and is upset if you don't outdo yourself at each subsequent meal. When my brother and cousins were teenagers, they could easily consume many rotis apiece. Mumji would gloat and report as if some world record had been broken. he dupped 11. There's a special word for it because of course, Nobody just eats her food. They dup as if it were their last meal on earth. Dup, a slangy Punjabi sound which I like to believe Mumji invented. To dup is to eat with abandon and to excess. It's a wonderful, reckless activity that often comes with a high price tag of remorse and indigestion. This does not deter dedicated duppers. Nowadays, each of the grandsons, as Mumji, still calls, as Mumji still calls them, though they are still... Gro- though, excuse me. Nowadays, each boy, as Mumji still calls her grandsons, though all are grown men, might manage six rotis, a healthy appetite by any standards. But Mumji, still nostalgic for the heyday of dupping, continues to roll out dozens of flatbreads. They puff up on her small cast iron thava to sighs of disappointment and mutterings, about how these days, everyone is on a diet. She cooks for the moments when someone's appetite will breach the quotidian limits of consumption, and she can rejoice.
0: Ah, so beautiful.
1: <laughs> but I mean, it's funny, because you were talking earlier about, um, you know, giving to, to, to women um, in, in the charities that you selected. And I'm really interested about the role of women in hospitality, mm-hmm. um, because of course, giving care work, cooking, this is so often, especially in the home, being the dom- domain of women, mm-hmm. um, and and out of the home too, if we think of care work. And so I think it's so interesting that my grandmother sort of transformed this arena, which was the only one in which she could really excel and assert herself, the kitchen. She transformed it into a kind of battlefield and used food as a weapon to try and get herself the attention that she that she needed, and to try and control everybody through their appetites. Mm-hmm. And this was very fascinating for me as a feminist, just thinking about um, how women have, you know, so many have been kind of oppressed by this um, by this expectation to, to to care and look after, and and some sort of turn that around and put it to, to a different effect, which, I, I'm, I mean, I, I hesitate to say that it was, you know, good or bad. It was what my grandmother managed to do in her, in, in her time. And it had some adverse effects. But, um, but it's very intriguing to me about these roles and the way that, and the expectations that come with them and the way that you might um, twist those and yeah. do something else with them.
0: Yeah, it's the it's the choice we take. You know, I mean, we can play like um, I mean, we can play this uh, sentence about like women belong into the kitchen. That's such a classical German expression. You know, Frauen gehören in die Küche, Küche.
1: Yeah, or, or the way or, or the way to a man's heart is through his stomach.
0: Yeah, and you can either see this as um, a way of that you are being like put into a position where you don't mean anything else, or you can, you know, take that and make it your own. And that's what I also liked about how you described your grandmother in that sense. You know, she, she, whatever she was handed, she, it's like the old saying of, you know, when you get lemons, make lemonade, you know, that, that sort of expression comes to mind. When, when I think about it, why not, um, why not use our beauty or whatever we've been handed to, to to use it to to bring our message forward in some more form or manner <laughs> if it's not too violent of course but yeah yeah and also i mean i guess not everybody has the the,
1: the means the character the capacity the possibility to to transform their lot mm. um, i think like too t- too many women still just don't have a choice about how they have to um, have to be but yeah my grandmother's one example of somebody who really managed to take this role and kind of, you know, become the kind of queen of of cooking and therefore have this power over everybody else.
0: Yeah, 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 beautiful. Also, what came to mind is like how, I mean, seeing that you're living in, in Europe, you know, and we are very much conscious of our figures, you know, how did that kind of, I mean, and you're talking about your love of food and I don't want to talk about weight loss and stuff, you know, but I'm kind of talking about that, Within the Indian tradition, which I teach, it's so funny that I'm talking to you, you know, and, and playing it back to you, but within the Indian tradition of Ayurveda, we're talking about when it's good to eat, like, you know, we eat at noon because the sun is up, we can, our digestion is better, and then in the evening we eat lighter, but then... I'm reading your book, you know, and I'm asking myself, how do you manage to to move from this extreme between really also loving the food, not only kind of being being the good child that kind of eats what her grandmother passes on, but just really enjoying it and also trying to manage how you you want to be in this society, maybe also conscious of yourself and of your own health, not so much in a sense that you need to live. Thin, but that you want to feel like you're living in a healthy body that can, mm. so you can sustain life and keep doing what you're doing.
1: Well, I do think that the, I mean, I'm definitely not immune to the expectations of what attractiveness and beauty are in our society. And, you know, the sort of ideal of thinness. Mm. Um, I, you know, this was the sort of um, image, these are the images I grew up with and which have also formed. For better or worse, my sense of self. I often get asked the question, "How can you be so greedy and still be thin?" And um, <laughs> I think it's uh, because I'm not. I'm not overeating all the time. I mean, I have my indulgences that I give into. I think I've probably also been saved by the fact that I, my body rebels um, mm-hmm. if I'm, you know, overdoing it, and I, I don't feel well, and so. I have this kind of this kind of natural um, yeah barrier um against overdoing it on a regular basis mm. um, but um i don't know i i I think in the sense that because I think when you cook and you eat and you do that with others, maybe there's also a sense in which you know you you're nourished by the act of making. You're nourished by the act of sharing. You don't actually need to consume that much yourself. Um, and I think this idea of nourishment that comes from other quarters, not just yeah. from you know what's on the plate, hmm. is is really important. And that's so. Um, Are you so, as well? Hmm. Yeah, and this is also what contributes to one's sense of well-being and one self, self sense of belonging. Um, and fitting in in a place um, regardless of you know the appearance
0: and that's the beauty of making food instead of you know getting food delivered eating out all the time and even you know like and when you are even being invited by somebody to know that that energy went into the food yeah so truly yeah, I can only nod my head here. And in regards to, that's what I'm so puzzled about. I know that you, I'm not sure, have you studied Ayurveda um, alongside with the yoga or not? No, I mean, I've only picked up a little bit from different
1: teachers, but I haven't made a concerted effort of my own to no. um, yeah familiarize
0: myself with that practice. And so what, what I'm always finding and why I'm doing this podcast is that Yoga happens and Ayurveda happens on so many levels through people once they kind of get, you know, find a love in their subject they're doing. I mean, you're, you have a love for writing, but you also have a love for eating. And in, in the relationship you find between these two things, you're also listening very intently to what your body and mind is saying. And that to me is yoga in itself, you know, that we aren't, um, that we're trying to balance our lives and that we listen to the inner voices and and the body and the people around us. And yeah, so that's beautiful to see. Okay, we're coming to an end. Is there anything you want to leave the listener with, like an advice or whatever it is you want to maybe finish this conversation we had with?
1: Um. Maybe I could just finish by reading the first paragraph of my book, which I think sums up something um, quite central to the book and the idea of um, hospitality. Uh, One of the really beautiful things that I discovered when I was writing and and researching is that uh, the English word hospitality comes from uh, the etymological root is an Indo-European word, gosti which meant host, guest and stranger simultaneously. And I thought that was so beautiful because I think that sort of really encapsulates the three roles that we consciously or unconsciously move through all our lives. You know, in our most intimate relationships, in our work, in, as a citizen in society at large. And so um, this was a kind of leitmotif motif for me as I was writing and thinking. And um, it's sort of, it's, it's the background to this beginning which um, I think is a, is a nice, n- nice place to end at the beginning. Yes. So let's hear We begin it. as guests, every single one of us, helpless little creatures whose every need must be attended to, who for a long time can give nothing or very little back, yet who, in the usual run of things, nevertheless insinuate ourselves deep into the lives of our carers and take up permanent residence in their hearts. Our early dependence is indulged in the expectation that we, in turn, will become dependable. Maybe reaching adulthood really means learning to be more host than guest, to take care more than, or at least as much as, to be taken care of.
0: Thank you, Priya, for coming onto my podcast and you know having spending time with me and kind of indulging us with these beautiful readings and parts of your book and for gifting this book to society. I'm really kind of grateful for that.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Alex, and um, for being such a generous reader. It was lovely talking to you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: See you soon, Priya.
0: If you enjoy listening to my podcast, please consider to become a patron at patreon.com slash Alexandra Kreis and pledge your donation.